team for uh, this morning and this evening for leading us in our worship of God. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. We're continuing in our series in the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. Um, and we come to chapter 45 this evening, a, a truly wonderful portion uh, of God's Word. And so let's read together uh, Genesis 45. Please keep your Bibles before you, and I think it will come up on the screen. Um, should we, let me get it there. There we go. All right. Let's read together Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors." So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for, you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, 
But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Well, this is God's word, and let's just come to the Lord now and commit uh, the preaching of the word to him. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity again this evening of coming before you, being able to read your word recorded for us in the pages of Scripture so many thousands of years ago, and yet a portion of Scripture which is just as gripping as that story must have been the very first time it unfolded in Egypt, and the application of which is just as relevant to our lives as your people here in Johannesburg today. And so we pray that as we come to your word now, uh, you would be pleased to speak to us through it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we started our series uh, in the life of Joseph back in January, uh, I mentioned that the overarching theme uh, of the whole story of Joseph is the theme of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. But at the same time, there was a, a secondary theme or a sub-theme which runs through all the chapters of Genesis 37 to 50, namely that of God's providence in the lives of his people. The fact that God works out all things for the good of those who love him. In our passage tonight, we see both of these themes coming together in such a clear way as God's faithfulness to his covenant promises is clearly seen through God's providence in the lives of his people. What is quite amazing to notice is that as we've been working our way through chapters 37 to 44, is that although God has been absent or silent in terms of personally speaking in the story of Joseph, nevertheless, God or Yahweh has been mentioned so far at least 25 times in these chapters. In tonight's chapter alone, God is mentioned another four times, and then in the remaining chapters up to chapter 50, God is going to be mentioned another 18 times. And so rightly understood, the, the story of Joseph is really a story about God. It's about God moving behind the scenes. He is directing all the players. He's giving dreams. He's restraining evil. He's controlling nature as we look at this famine that is unfolding, the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine. And as Shane has even been showing us over the last three weeks, even changing the hearts of previously wicked men and all of this to accomplish God's purposes. All of this ultimately for the, the perfect fulfillment of his covenant promises to his people. So let me bring up 
the definition of God's providence, which I quoted uh, at the beginning of our series. Uh, okay, I'm going to have to jump through all of this. There we go. Okay. There we go. Okay. Digby, I'm in control. All right. Thanks. Okay. There's the, the, the definition we looked at the beginning. The providence of God is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator, that is God, preserves all his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Now, looking back over the story so far, I'm sure you can see how this definition of God's providence has really come to life on every page of Joseph's story. As God has not only preserved Joseph, uh, but he's also preserved all of his creatures, including the Egyptians, and now we see especially preserving his people Israel. We also see that he's been operative in all that has come to pass. And God has been directing all things, even the rebellious hearts of sinful people, to their appointed end. So what an incredible encouragement and comfort this is for us as Christians today in Johannesburg in March 2023. To know that God's sovereign providence is active, is active in preserving us is active and operative in all that is happening in our world and in our lives, and is directing all things, every detail of our lives, every step of this church, even the events of nature and politics and economics, he is directing it all to his appointed end. Alistair Begg says that the implications of this truth this doctrine of God's providence, as I mentioned before, are staggering because they impact every area and every moment of our lives. And so our chapter tonight is really where the rubber hits the road for our theology as Christians because this chapter shows us what it really looks like for the, the staggering implications of God's providence to practically impact the way we live our lives as Christians in the world. And so we're going to consider uh, chapter 45 under the title of Living in the Light of God's Providence. And I want to try and apply this personally tonight as we look at the way that Joseph lived, lived every day of his life under the sovereign providence of God. And so in the first place tonight, I want us to see that God's providence changes my perspective. And that's found in verses 5 to 9. Verses 5 to 9 are really the theological heart of this chapter which is why we're gonna look at them first and then we'll see how that's fleshed out in the rest of the chapter. But, but let's just set the scene uh, for what Joseph says in verses five to nine. The last three chapters, chapter 42, 43, and 44, we've been considering the road to reconciliation as Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy food and Joseph puts his brothers through a series of tests to see whether they have really changed. And those tests culminated in the final test that we saw last week, uh, when the brothers had the opportunity to discard Benjamin as they had previously discarded Joseph, and simply to head back to Canaan with lots of food and lots of money. 
But Shane showed us last week how Judah, Judah wonderfully stood in the gap for Benjamin. He offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin, all because of a promise, a covenant he had made with his father Jacob. Judah revealed last week the true nature of a changed man, a man who now loved his father more than he loved himself, and who was willing to actually lay down his life for his youngest brother. When Joseph saw the true nature of Judah's transformation, we read in verse 1 that he was overcome with emotion. He ordered everyone out of his house, and then he broke down in uncontrollable weeping, weeping which was so loud that even the household of Pharaoh, I presume Joseph must have lived nearby to Pharaoh, but big property, so even the household of Pharaoh heard it. As Joseph cried out in his mother tongue, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? We must remember that doesn't come across in our English Bibles, obviously, but up to this point in the whole story, every dialogue that we have read would have been in Egyptian. All the communication with Joseph's brothers leading up to this point had taken place through an interpreter. But now for perhaps the first time in 22 years, Zaphonath Pania, that was his Egyptian name, he cries out in Hebrew, I am Joseph. Talk about seeing a ghost. His brothers were terrified in his presence. They could not say a word. And and so Joseph speaks again in verse 4. And he says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, just imagine the emotions of these men to realize in that moment, not only was Joseph still alive, but he was now the mighty ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And he's just reminded them that they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Surely they expected that 22 years of of vengeance and bitterness and hatred would have welled up in Joseph at that moment and their execution was imminent. But what follows is the exact opposite. Joseph calls them near to him and he says these amazing words which reveal the heart of a man who is totally submitted to the providence of God in his life. Let's read from verse 4b. He said to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father. Say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Do you see how God's providence has changed Joseph's perspective. Twice in verse four and five, Joseph reminds them of the facts. Yes, you sold me into Egypt, but guess what? It was not you 
who sent me here. Four times in these verses, Joseph reiterates this truth. Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me to preserve a remnant on the earth. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And again, verse 9, tell my father Jacob, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. So I want us to think through this very personally and, and as a church tonight. How does the providence of God really change your and my perspective as we live our lives in this broken world? It really concerns me as a pastor to hear that many Christians, even in this church, live their lives every single day, even making big decisions about what to study at university, which career to follow, to take a promotion or not, who to marry, where you choose to live, if and how many children you might have one day, whether you will homeschool your kids or not, which ministries in the church you should get involved in, which small group you should join. All of these decisions are being made without considering even for a second what is God's will for my life? What are God's purposes for me in this world? Now please follow the logic here. If God's sovereign providence, as our defini definition has said, is, is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby our creator preserves all of his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. He directs all things to their appointed end. Then surely every single moment of your life matters to God. Every single decision you take matters to God. This is what Paul meant in Acts 17 when he said it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Our very lives are bound up in our relationship with God. It was Joseph's experiential insight into the sovereign providence of God which caused Joseph to see God in everything. It changed not only his perspective on his own suffering and pain and all the injustice that was done to him in the past, but it also changed his perspective on this current season of incredible power and prosperity. It was all part of God's perfect plan in creating for himself a people of promise. Please look again at verse seven. It, it is really quite astounding. Joseph sees his 22 years of abandonment and suffering and trial and loneliness and waiting in Egypt not in the light of how he would one day become rich and famous and everyone would buy down to him, but entirely in the light of God's purposes for his brothers. Joseph remembered the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back uh, in, now I've lost signal here. Um, can you go to the next slide for me, please, Digby? I'm not in control. What a lesson. <laughs> what? 
is anyone. There we go. <laughs> All right. There it is. Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation. This is God's covenant with Abraham. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now Joseph looks at this skinny, hungry group of men standing before him, the very men who cruelly betrayed him, they stripped him of his clothes, they threw him in a pit to die, then they decided then rather than just let him die, let's make some money off him, and so they sold him as a slave, and as he looked at them, he looked at them through the perspective of God's sovereign providence, and he says in verse 7, God sent me before you. The sons of Israel to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors, because that is what God promised to our great-grandfather Abraham. In other words, it's not about me. It's not even about you. God's sovereign providence is accomplishing God's covenant promises so that one day, through the offspring of Abraham, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now let me ask you this. If the providence of God is the perspective that changed everything for Joseph, what is different for you and me today? How is it that we can call ourselves Christians and yet we live our lives so individualistically, so self-centeredly, that God doesn't even feature in our decision-making, and the last thing that we consider when living out our lives is God's purposes in and for His church, for the people of God. Joseph here is 40 years old. He's, he's the ruler of Egypt, and he was able to say to his brothers, it's all about God. My life has all been about God accomplishing His purposes in me and through me so that His purposes in you will flourish. It's not about me in the suffering or in the prosperity. It's all been for your sake. It's amazing. Where is this kind of Christianity today? I think it's, it's this spirit of Joseph that drove the missionary pioneers of the previous centuries to give up all the comforts and the securities of homes and careers and first world countries to go and serve the Lord for 40 or 50 years in the remotest parts of the world. Why? So that the purposes of God in building His church, His kingdom, would be accomplished. You see, what we witness here in Joseph's life is not limited to the pages of, of Genesis. It's not even limited to the Old Testament. It's the reality for every single one of us as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. Listen to how Peter puts this in writing to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's you and me. We are a people for his own possession, does it stop there? So that 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen to the same perspective from Paul in 2 Corinthians 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, it compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, here it is, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The evidence that you and I are a Christian tonight is that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him for whose sake he died and was raised. Paul goes on and he says, all this is from God who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. So God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and then what? And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he explains it, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. There's this vertical reconciliation. How did he do that? By not counting our sins against us. And then, after reconciling us to God, he entrusts back to us this horizontal ministry, this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is Joseph. This is what Joseph did to his brothers and for his brothers. You see, in Joseph's speech to his brothers and Peter's words and Paul's teaching, it all says the same thing. We have been saved by God as a part of his sovereign purposes to accomplish his covenant faithful promises, which is to redeem a people for himself from every nation and language and tribe and tongue. And so he is preserving all of his creatures. He is operative in all that comes to pass. He is directing all things to their appointed end. And he does that through every single event and circumstance and decision and action of each of us as his children and collectively through us as his church. Now this might sound good and theological, but I want us to see in the second place tonight that the outworking of this first point is very tangible and practical because fundamentally God's providence changes my heart. And really, this is the, the overarching theme of this whole chapter. How was it possible that Joseph did not become a grumpy, bitter, judgmental, resentful, cynical, mistrusting, insecure, irreligious person after 20 years of betrayal and suffering and injustice in his life. How is that possible? Well, it's not because he once read a Bible verse about God's providence and that just kind of sorted him out. But it was because the providence of God is designed by God to actually change our hearts. And if we don't see that, we will never embrace the providence of God. 
when we start to see the world through the lens, through the perspective of an all-loving God who is all-powerful to accomplish his purposes, who is sovereignly in control over everything, orchestrating all of life to its intended end, then we can just relinquish the control of our hearts, firstly for God to save us and then to shape us and then to use us in accordance with his good and perfect pleasure. Submitting to the providence of God in our lives is the simple recognition that he is the potter and we are the clay. And while his plans might not always align uh, with what we had hoped or expected, that he is ultimately fashioning us into a vessel of eternal value as we are being molded into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we see in this chapter that Joseph's heart was changed in four ways. His heart was changed to forgive, to reconcile, to bless, and to love. Let's just work through those quickly. Firstly, we see that God's providence changes my heart. Let's make it personal this evening to forgive. We see how God changed Joseph's heart to forgive his brothers. There is not a resentful bone in Joseph's body as he breaks down in weeping before his brothers. And he cries out in their own language, I am Joseph. And when they withdraw from him in fear, we see the true heart of forgiveness in verse 4. He says to them, come near to me, please. And as they come near, he says, I am your brother, Joseph. Because Joseph lived in the perspective of God's providence, he was able to forgive his brothers from the heart. He was able to call them near. He was able to call them his brothers. I mean, they had been absolutely terrible brothers for the first 17 years of his life. They had been entirely non-existent brothers for the next 22 years. And yet Joseph says to them, I am your brother. I wish we could do a whole sermon on the subject of forgiveness uh, from this passage tonight and others in Scripture. We don't have time for that. But I do fear that too many people, even in this church, are living with deep resentment and bitterness towards others in your life and maybe even towards others who are already dead. Perhaps towards a brother or a sister who betrayed you and threw you under the bus, perhaps towards your spouse who broke your trust and broke your heart, perhaps towards your boss who misjudged you and sidelined you or dismissed you unfairly, perhaps towards work colleagues who undermined you or, or forgot you or trampled on you in order to get ahead. Perhaps you harbor unforgiveness towards the Amnons in your life who abused you, towards the Absaloms who rebelled against you, towards fellow Christians who betrayed confidence and hurt you, towards parents who, who disappointed you and abandoned you, towards children who dishonored you and rebelled against you, 
And maybe for years now you've lived with a a deep-seated spirit of unforgiveness in your heart, and it's eating you up from the inside, and it's keeping you in a prison of bitterness and resentment towards them and towards others and even towards God. There's an amazing saying which says, unforgiveness is like you drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Unforgiveness is probably the most toxic, dangerous weapon of mass destruction which Satan has deployed against the church of Jesus Christ. Because unforgiveness fundamentally goes against the gospel of our own salvation, and sadly it reveals that we have not really submitted to the providence of God in our lives. Secondly, we also see how God's providence changed Joseph's heart to be able to reconcile with his brothers. See, forgiveness is a one-way street because ultimately forgiveness is a decision to see the other person's sin against me as part of God's sovereign providence to accomplish his purposes in my life. It may not be pleasant, it may be very painful, but I'm entrusting them and their actions against me toward, uh, to, to God and his providence in my life, and so I'm trusting God to deal with them in his own time and in his own way, and so I am able to forgive. It's one way. But forgiveness is always the doorway to reconciliation, which by definition is a two-way street. Forgiveness is one way. You can forgive someone who doesn't repent. You can forgive someone who doesn't repent, but you can never be reconciled to someone who is not forgiven. Joseph's brothers don't ask for his forgiveness, and yet he gives it freely. And because he has forgiven them, Joseph takes the initiative to be reconciled to them. We see this in a couple of verses. Verse four, come near to me, please, he says. Verse five, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. These are the same men who back in chapter 37 literally would not even greet him. They hated him with such deep hatred that they felt nothing to plot his murder, made a mockery of his dreams, and now these same men are embracing, they are weeping, they are talking together. What a wonderful description of true reconciliation. See, to the degree that God's providence has changed your heart, only to that degree will you be able to forgive others and then truly be reconciled to them. Thirdly, we also see how God's providence changed Joseph's heart to be able to bless his brothers. Now, for many of us, we kind of see forgiveness as a kind of a weapon sometimes. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to keep reminding you of my forgiveness by withholding from you. 
I'm going to withhold my presence from you. I'm going to withhold my conversation from you. I'm going to hold my, withhold my friendship and my kindness from you. But I'll keep reminding you that I've forgiven you. What a load of nonsense. Joseph saw that all the wickedness and the evil of his brothers against him was part of God's purposes, God's sovereign design in his life. And he could not only forgive them and be genuinely reconciled to them, but he could delight to bless them. Because in God's strange providence, that was God's purpose all along. Everything Joseph went through was ultimately so that his brothers would be blessed. And so we see how Joseph just lavishes the blessings of God upon his brothers. He arranges for them to move to Egypt with the very best of the land and not to just kind of spare them from death with the bare minimum of daily rations, but he showers them with all the blessings which God had showered upon Joseph. And finally, we see how God's providence changed Joseph's heart to be able to genuinely love his brothers. Everything in this chapter just shouts out to us that Joseph has a deep love for his brothers, a love which does not flow out of a wonderful childhood together. No, this is a love which despite betrayal and deception and violence and hatred, it overflows from a heart that has been loved by God. Although the apostle John wrote these words that I'm going to bring up now a few thousand years later, Joseph's life is a living demonstration of 1 John 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, just as Judah was willing to do for Benjamin. So we need to draw our time to a close this evening, but before we do that, I need to ask you to evaluate to what degree you are really living in the light of God's providence. To what degree has the knowledge of God's providence so changed your perspective on life and all the details of it, both the good times and the bad times, both suffering and prosperity? Well, the evidence that you are submitting to and delighting in the providence of God will be seen very practically in the attitude of your heart, especially towards those who have sinned against you who've hurt you, who've betrayed you, who've dishonored you, who've disappointed you, who've rebelled against you. Have you truly forgiven them? Have you opened the door of genuine reconciliation and invited them in? Have you sought to bless them as a conduit of God's grace to them? 
Have you truly done all that you can to love them? Have you honest that you are just not there tonight? You just cannot forgive. You are really not interested in reconciliation. The last thing on your mind is blessing them. And while you probably wouldn't admit openly to hating them, well, loving them is not even on your radar. Can I suggest that your problem may well be that you have misunderstood the big picture of the story of Joseph because you've misunderstood the big picture of the story of the Bible. Let's all be honest tonight. As we read this story, we all want to identify with Joseph, don't we? We all like to think that we are the innocent person who has been sinned against our whole lives. We all like to think that one day in the future when our ship comes in, our enemies come groveling at our feet, well then we will be the hero and we'll show them forgiveness. But as yet, well they remain unrepentant and so we'll just continue in our elevated position which God has finally given to us because we are such amazing people. Well that right there is our problem. Because the big picture of Genesis 45 is that you and I are not Joseph. Jesus is. And we are the horrible, wicked, self-centered, jealous, hungry brothers who need to be forgiven. You see, in the grand storyline of the Bible, Jesus is the one who weeps over our sins against him. Jesus is the one who comes to us and calls us to draw near to him. Jesus is the one we betrayed. It was our sins who nailed him to the cross. And yet Jesus is the one whom God sent before us to save us. Jesus is the one whom God has made Lord over all the earth. Jesus is the one who freely forgives us. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to himself. Jesus is the one who blesses us because Jesus is the one who ultimately loves us perfectly. You see, it's only when we recognize that we are the brothers and we need Jesus to forgive us and restore us and bless us and love us. It's only as we realize, as Joseph's brothers did in this chapter, that everything they received from Joseph was purely a gift of his grace and mercy. It's only then that we will begin to see others who've sinned against us in the same light, and only then will we be able to offer them forgiveness and blessing and love which we have received from God. Listen to John MacArthur. He says, forgiveness, nothing is more foreign to sinful human nature and nothing is more characteristic of divine grace. God is the consummate forgiver and we depend every day on his ongoing forgiveness for our sins. The least we can do is emulate his forgiveness in our dealings with one another. Greg Laurie says, our generous and constant forgiveness of others should be the natural result 
of our embracing the forgiveness God has extended to us. I'm not sure if that was John MacArthur that was speaking previously, but let's just go back to this quote. Um, Forgiveness. Nothing is more foreign to our sinful human nature. And yet nothing is more characteristic of divine grace. As we reflect on the incredible grace and forgiveness and blessing and love that we have received from Jesus Christ, not just once, but every single day, can I remind you that unforgiveness not only then reveals that we have not understood the gospel, but actually prevents us from fulfilling the purpose for which God saved us. Let me just end with that last passage from 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How? By not counting our sins, our trespasses against us. That's how you and I were reconciled with Christ. And so he's entrusted that same message of reconciliation to us. And so we are God's ambassadors. We're the ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. It's only as we forgive the sins of others against us will we be able to be this ambassador of Christ and his forgiveness to them. Well, may God help us to be a people who are so overwhelmed by the gospel, so deeply grateful to God for his forgiveness daily of all our sins that we will leave here tonight and go and freely forgive those who have sinned against us, that we will seek to be reconciled to them in order to bless them and to love them as we walk in the light of God's sovereign providence to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Hi, Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for this wonderful portion of your word this evening, a portion that points us so clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ and his incredible love for us as sinful, broken people who only deserved his judgment and wrath. And yet he took all of the punishment and all of the exile and all of the the wrath of God upon himself in our place so that we might not just be reconciled to him as an end in itself, but that we might be reconciled through Jesus to God as a means to a greater end of making that message of reconciliation known to all people. Lord, forgive us where we have not fully grasped the gospel in our own lives as evidenced in our unforgiveness against others. And won't you stir within us a greater desire to allow nothing to be a hindrance to our ability to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ as we go out from here and to make this message of the gospel known to others. For we pray this in Jesus' name.